live according to who they were as Christians. So does that sound familiar to you? Sounds a lot like us. Sounds a lot like the Western church. Sounds a lot like perhaps even the New England church, and to some degree, King of Grace, at least some of the things that we at times struggle with. So we learned going through this that these guys were a lot like us. They had a lot of the same struggles, a lot of the same problems, a lot of the same deficiencies that we have and that we might be tempted with. And they found, and I think we found in 1 Corinthians, some much-needed truth that goes right after these different issues. Right after it. And it's interesting, I think we found as we went through that the way to navigate these different issues was fundamentally the truth of the Gospel. Paul didn't bring really other things. I mean, he did to a degree, but more than anything, Paul would again and again, when there was an issue, bring them back to the truth of the Gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, Him crucified, the Savior and Lord, God the Son, crucified for sinners, and all the implications from that. Again and again, He would bring them back to that. And for us, the way through the rough waters of American culture and our experience, it's not a matter of having better techniques having better presentation and polish as a church. It's not even about having more gifted leadership and administration. All those things are good. But what we learn from 1 Corinthians is above all these things, the most important thing is to bring the truth of the Gospel and its far-reaching implications to bear on every issue. That's what the Apostle Paul did. That's what God in the Word, through the inspiration He gave to Paul, did for the Corinthians and therefore does for us as well. So that truth rang throughout. The truth of bringing the Gospel to bear. The good news. I think it's important when we use the word Gospel, we use it here a lot as a church, and it's an appropriate word to use. We're not going to stop using it, but it's really important that we understand what that is. Because you, know, you can get to the place where you throw terms around, and, and you have spiritual jargon, and you may, we may miss the point. And so we can talk about gospel-centered living, we can talk about focusing on the gospel, keeping the gospel central, and we may totally miss what that is. So it's so important for us to understand what this gospel is, and that is, it's good news. Literally, that's what the word means, good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's significant news. It's not just like informational news. It's, it's news that's powerful. It's news that changes things. That's how God works. He's one who speaks His Word and there's change. So this isn't just information. This is Word that comes with transformation. It's proclamation. It's the most important news in all of history, in all of creation, in the whole universe. This good news. This Gospel. Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. The word Jesus Christ means Savior and King. It's the proclamation of our Savior and King. And at the core, His death on the cross to pay for sins. Christ died for sinners. Christ died for our sins. That five-word proclamation is the core of it. But there's just so much that comes with that. And we have to be careful that we don't trivialize it and just kind of repeat it without feeling the impact of it. This is the good news, the Gospel, the most important message there is. Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King. This perfect One. The One who's worthy of all worship. The good news that this One who created all things and created mankind to be His people, and therefore we have an obligation to Him, this One who's the Creator of all, this perfect One came and lived a perfect life. Fulfilled everything that mankind was meant to be. Perfectly and then died on the cross to pay for our sins. The good news of His salvation and His Lordship and that He extends to His people as they respond in repentance and faith. Salvation, forgiveness, new life. And with that comes all the aspects of His reign and rule and return for us. 
That's the good news. And so Paul is a proclaimer of the good news. He saw that his job was as an apostle of God, one who came and bore these tidings of good news that were powerful, that changed things. And so he saw that the Corinthians' problems were answered by the good news in all its implications. And so we must see the same. And he does a masterful job. He did a masterful job in 1 Corinthians of addressing a wide range of difficulties and problems. I mean, just think of all the stuff we saw in those 16 chapters. All sorts of issues. But each one of them, you see him bringing them back to the good news and its implications. Richard Hayes, a commentator on 1 Corinthians, says, Paul attempts to address all particular pastoral problems in light of fundamental theological considerations. Somehow he finds that the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen speaks to every concern of the Corinthians community. And David Garland similarly says, the cross, its wisdom or its effect is also pivotal in every issue except one concerning headdress, and I would argue that that tangentially applies to that as well. It is central to his discussion of factions, but also appears in his discussion of incest, lawsuits, sexual morality, marriage, idol meat, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, and the resurrection. So he's in this letter with the Corinthians, bringing the gospel to bear again and again. And that's one lesson. That's one snapshot. Really, that's, that's part of the whole photo album. In every photo in this trip that we took, something of the gospel is there. There's some background of the gospel. And so as we look back on that, we must remember the centrality of the gospel for us as believers, for us as a local church. Hopefully we have learned the lesson that the gospel and its implications has something to say about everything. Every single thing. We saw it again and again with all these issues, and certainly for these issues, but every aspect of life. The truth of the gospel and its implication comes to bear. So a question to ask, I guess, coming back from this trip is, how am I following through with that reality? How am I looking at life through the lens of the gospel? How am I viewing who I am? How am I viewing my relationships? How am I viewing my family? How am I viewing my job? How am I viewing my sexuality? How am I viewing church life? How am I viewing every aspect? How am I viewing God Himself at the core of all this in light of the Gospel, in light of this truth? Because when we start to grasp that, things change. We see God's glory. We experience what He intends for us to experience. We start to experience His intention for His people. We start to taste of heaven. For one day this work will be complete when we go to be with Him. And we'll experience the fullness of life before our God because of the Gospel. Beholding His glory in and through the Gospel and in all things. So Paul labors patiently with the Corinthians to bring them back again and again. And right at the start, right at the beginning of Corinthians in chapter 1, he starts to bring them to the Gospel. We know that one issue they struggled with was, was just worldly wisdom. And so Paul brings them to the truth. And in chapter 1, verse 18, and you can kind of follow along with me as we move along, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. That is true for us. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord. So right off the bat, Paul is bringing the gospel to bear and the central message, and he's bringing it to bear on how the Corinthians view themselves and view God and view life. And basically says, folks, your identity is in Him, and you are fools according to the world, but wise in His eyes through the gospel. This is who you are. You are called to this countercultural, this radically countercultural message. And there's just no way to live in the culture and compromise with the culture fully because you're fools if you're a believer. And you'll never be able to do that. So find your life here, for the gospel is the wisdom of God, it's the glory of God, the power of God. It's how God shows his glory, and we are to find our life in this Gospel. This is the center of our, of our lives, what we are to center on. And so Paul comes right against the Corinthians' worldview of themselves and of society and says the Gospel just breaks that all down. It just dismantles it and destroys it and exalts itself and its foolishness to the world, but it's wisdom for God and for us. And it's the glory of God. And he calls us to that. That's our identity. That's what we are called to as his people. To do the same. So we are just like the Corinthians. We live in a culture and there are cultural influences. And and we must be wise in that, but we must fundamentally find our identity in Christ. And realize that we are in the place where we are just going to be foolish to the culture. We are to ground ourselves. It doesn't mean we are to isolate ourselves from the culture, but we are to ground ourselves in this counter-cultural message and truth and reality. That's the glory of God. So this truth, this gospel, is in every photo. It's in every aspect here. There's two kind of main things that Paul talks about. There's There's a lot of things that he talks about, and again, there's just no way for me to kind of hit everything. But I just want to look at two issues and just talk about with these different photos of how Paul brought the gospel to bear. And these would be two key issues, at least in terms of how the Corinthians would have seen it, in terms of the the urgency of these issues that they felt. And that was one, the issue of church life, and in particular, unity. And the other issue was holiness as God's people. Unity, church life, and holiness. And, And I just want to review a little bit how Paul brought the truth of the gospel and its implications to bear on these two issues. And again, I want to review this not just so that we could say, wow, that's right, that was kind of cool how we did that. That's neat. What's the next preaching series going to be? But to say, what does this mean for me? See, God wants his word to work through our lives. And he wants to teach us of himself. And he wants to teach us just like he was teaching through Paul the Corinthians. And he wants us to experience new life in him. He wants us to walk according to the gospel. So his attention is not fixed on Corinth this morning, as far as we're concerned. His attention is fixed on us. And he wants this truth, the Word of God, to come and bring change and reveal his glory and change us and magnify his name. So as we look at these things, we will be directing our attention through this truth to ourselves as well. So church unity. This was something that came up right away in the letter. Do you remember chapter 1? Right away? It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. This might have even been the reason they, they sent the delegation to Paul, because the quarreling was getting ugly. And this was a problem with them. So it's reported to him that there's quarreling among the brothers. And and this is a theme, this disunity and and a disrupted church life that runs throughout the whole letter. And in the different specifics that Paul addresses, this is kind of what's going on. And right away, predictably, Paul 
jumps to the gospel, to Christ, his rule and reign and his salvation. So if you look in chapter 1 and verse 11, it says it's been reported that there's quarrels and, and Paul, through asking questions, brings home the point, ultimately, I think, summed up in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Right to the Gospel. Right to the truth. Basically saying that unity or disunity is is totally contrary to the Gospel. Christ died for His people. Not Paul, not somebody else. Not, not some leader that we want to f- form a clique around, but Christ Himself. And Christ is not divided. Christ is one. And so if you are in Christ, you are one. So there's no room here for factions. No room here for disunity. No, no room here for quarreling. The Gospel brings the truth that the church is one. We are united in Him. We are one. Therefore, live accordingly to that oneness. That truth must inform us. It must inform how we relate as a local church. For in the oneness, there are local churches within that. And we are to walk out that oneness mostly and primarily in the context of our local church. But it also influences how we view the church as a whole. We are one with our brothers and sisters down the street. We are one in Christ together. So we are to view them according to that truth. We are to love them. We are to pray for them. We are to be for them. And at times we may want to, to address problems that are hindering them from walking in the truth. doesn't mean we're passive, but we are to love them and we are to be for them. And certainly, primarily here within our local church, and you guys do that so well. I know the gospel is affecting us and, and it's shown in just when we get together how we love to be together and love to share life together and love to do the whole gamut of life together. And, and I know some of you go into go fishing and a picnic on the beach, and I love to do that. And that's just a sign that we are understanding the implications. So I'm very glad for that. So Paul brings that to bear. Then he goes on in chapter 3 to continue to address this whole thing of unity and says some very profound things that I think for us, if we grasp, are going to really just turn our lives upside down. In chapter 3, in verses uh, 21 through 23, he's talking about the fact that there's these cliques and they're following different leaders and 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 assembling around them. And he says, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. So stop boasting in men. Stop forming cliques. Stop thinking that you have to form parties and factions. All these leaders are yours. If you are in Christ, He is the sovereign King. And He rules over all things. And He says in the Word that He works all things for our good. And the leaders He raises up for the church are for the good of the church. So let us not align ourselves along leaders. Let us realize we are His and He gives us good leaders, godly leaders, for our good. And not only that, not just leaders are ours, but all things are ours. Isn't that an amazing truth? All things are ours. The world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are ours. And Christ is ours. He promises to work all things for our good. That's an amazing truth for the believer. And that should just change us dramatically when we realize everything is for my good. Everything, all leaders, all circumstances are from a sovereign God for my good. And I belong to Christ. And I belong to God. He is mine and I am His. So why be petty and align ourselves with people? That just doesn't make sense. God works all things for our good. So He brings that truth to them. It's pretty amazing stuff when we start to grasp it. And we realize that that is the truth for us as His people. And He is for us as a church. And He wants to work in us and through us and use leaders and He wants to use different things to build us up. That should change how we live life. Paul continues with this issue of church unity in chapter 6. Speaking to believers who were taking each other to court. So they were doing what their society did is when there was an issue, a conflict, they sued. Sound familiar? 
they would sue. And, and they'd practice it. Their problems with litigation probably were worse than ours today. It was very common to take people to court over things. So when they came, became believers and were added to the church, they just probably figured, well, hey, what's the difference, you know? We'll take people to court. And it may have been that the, the whole court issue was around this a church discipline issue, and the guy that was disciplined might have turned around and taken someone to court. We don't know the specifics. But they were taking people to court. So Paul addresses this again, and he brings the truth of the gospel to bear once again. Broken record. I'm a broken record because I believe the scriptures are a broken record on this. And, and the gospel is never to be a been there, done that thing. Because the glory of God, this is his pinnacle in a sense of the revelation of his glory. When he wanted to show himself and show his glory, he did it by creating the universe and creation around us, and that's surely glorious, and it's actually beyond what we can even fathom. I mean, there's just so much going on out there. We just see trees and blue sky, but just, I mean, you look on the molecular level, the atomic level, you look at, you know, the astrophysical level. I mean, it's just, you'll never, we'll never finish figuring out how God did it. That's glorious, but you know what? That's not the pinnacle. The pinnacle is Christ, crucified and risen. So this is never to be a been there, done that. There's always more to understand of his holiness in his love, in his glory, in his goodness, in his wisdom, in his justice, in the cross. So that's why it's a broken record because it's the, the highest revelation of the glory of God. And, glory, the God. and God is most glorious, eternally glorious, and we'll never finish probing who he is. So may we not ever been, have that attitude of been there, done that, and I have had that attitude. And I'm sure each of us has, but that's very ignorant. And God doesn't want us to be in that place. He wants us to know his glory and enjoy his glory and live for his glory. So Paul brings it again and again in uh, verse, verses 8, 9, and 11 of chapter 6. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, he says in verse 9? And such were some of you, he says in verse 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Because these guys are your brothers and you're taking them to court. Don't you know that, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is the, the life of the unrighteous is not who you are and what you're called to. Some of you were, but you were washed. Your sins were washed away. You were sanctified. You've already been set apart in Christ for holiness, enjoying God. You were sanctified. You were justified. You were declared righteous and accepted. You were. This has happened already, past tense. You were, you were, you were. So how can you be taking your brothers to court? You were called to holiness and love and Christ-likeness. So that's a contradiction. It's inconceivable. And hopefully that word means what I think it means <laughs> in light of these truths. It really, we're Princess Bride fan, fans here, in case you didn't know. But it truly is. It just doesn't make sense to, to walk that way in light of the gospel. And throughout Scripture, that's how things work. That's what, uh, over and over and over again, the truth of who we are, the, what is called the indicative, always drives the imperative, the command. The reality of who we are in Christ always drives the action. And that's where they go again and again. This just doesn't fit with who you are, so walk according to it. And it isn't just fantasy, folks. It isn't just, it isn't just fantasy. There's power. There's power in those truths. And those are the truths that the Spirit of God ministers through to us to sanctify us, to, to draw us to holiness, to, to lead us on in repentance, turning from sin to these wonderful realities we're called to and this wonderful, amazing God behind them. So Paul does that here in this letter. He goes on to, to bring these truths to bear on other things. He addresses the issue of Christian liberty in chapters 8 through 10. Again, it's related to church unity and church relationship. Christian liberty. And in particular, in the issue of food offered to idols, that was the particular concern that they had. And they probably just asked Paul, hey, what are we supposed to do with this thing about food offered to idols? Because if you lived in that society at that time, and you wanted to eat meat, just about all the meat, I think, 
all the meat, was sacrificed to some pagan god before it was offered for sale, either at the temple or in the market. So this wasn't just like a side issue. This was basically, hey, I, you know, I need to eat meat and it's been offered to idols. What am I supposed to do? They asked this question and Paul gave them a three-chapter answer to their, to their question because he wanted to go after all the layers of the issues that were behind that for them. And one of those issues was Christian liberty. Christian liberty. He presses the Corinthians to remember that their freedom in Christ must be exercised in love for others and worship of God. That it's not freedom as the ultimate value, but freedom must be exercised in love for others and in worship of God. You see, Christ has won our freedom. He's won our freedom. We stand before God justified. We stand before God Justified. We stand before God with the righteousness that Christ earned through his perfection, his perfect life, his fulfilling of all these covenants, all these agreements that God had with mankind. Christ fulfilled perfectly. He was the perfect Jew. He was the perfect Adam. He was perfect in every way. He fulfilled all these things. And then he bore our sins on the cross and paid for them. So if we are in Christ, if we belong to him, if we are in a relationship through faith with him, we stand with that credited to us. We stand right now counted as if we fulfilled all the covenants. As if we never disobeyed. As if we earned the statement, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's amazing. It's already done. And all our sins are washed away. There's no sin counted to us. He said, it is finished. It's done. It's done. It is finished for you if you're a believer. And so you're forgiven. And you're free. There's no penalty for sin left for you. You're free. That's what we have in Christ. That's our freedom and our liberty. And we're a church that's committed to that truth because I believe the Scriptures are committed to that truth. We love our freedom in Christ. And for many of us, if we've come from certain backgrounds, our experience of encountering that truth can be like coming to the Lord all over again. If we've been ones who have lived in a, in a background where we worry about every jot and tittle of what we're supposed to do, and we live with the guilt of that day to day, and then we find that in Christ we are totally forgiven and counted righteous, and we experience that freedom, it's almost like coming to know the Lord all over again. Ah, you mean I don't have to live this way? I'm counted as His. I'm counted righteous. I'm justified. I'm free. And we want to be a people who treasure that because that's to the glory of God. We treasure our freedom. And so we must heed what Paul says to the Corinthians in chapters 8-10. through 10, That yes, we are to treasure our freedom, but we're not to use our freedom to indulge the sinful nature, to sin. We are to, to use our freedom to love and to worship God. We are to experience the wonder of being justified, standing justified, and right before Him, and a, and a future hope to be with Him forever. We're to enjoy that, but we're never to use that to be selfish. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. And that's what we can do if we're not careful. We are going to build on that truth and we are going to enjoy our freedom. And we're not going to be a church with all these rules and stuff. But we're going to be a church committed to loving each other and loving God. And we must lay down our freedoms at times for the sake of others. And so that's what Paul did in those chapters. In chapter 9, do you remember? He talked about his apostolic ministry. And he didn't do that just to talk about himself. He did that as an illustration of somebody who had all these prerogatives as an apostle. He could have asked for income. He could have done this way. He could have expected this, but he laid it all down. All these freedoms he laid down, all these things he was obligated to receive, he laid down for the sake of the church in Corinth. And so he said, folks, walk this way when it comes to our freedom, when it comes to questionable practices like food offered to idols and so forth. Love others and lay it down. Again, bringing the truth of the gospel because our Savior laid down his life for us. Therefore, we're to lay down our lives for one another. So he continues to, through the book, 
bring the truth of the gospel to bear. There's so many other snapshots we could look at. The Lord's Supper in chapter 11, the truth of the gospel in light of the Lord's Supper. Spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14. Love in chapters, chapter 13. All instances where the truth of the gospel dictates and determines how we are to live as God's people. I hope you'll take time, perhaps this week, this month, this year, this lifetime, just to go back and look once again. We want to be people who study the Word, to know the Word, to live by God's power in the Word. So let this series not be the last time we get in 1 Corinthians and dig. Let us go back. Because we're going to encounter issues. As a matter of fact, we'll probably encounter issues today that are very much the same. So we want to go back and see how the Word functions and let the Word function in our lives. Let me go on to the topic of holiness, where Paul begins to address the issue of holiness in the church. There's a number of snapshots we can take, and we won't hit them all. But he, in chapter 5, starts to address holiness. Apparently there's some form of incest going on, a man and his aunt. And Paul goes after this, and he goes after it in light of the gospel once again. And in chapter 5, if you look in verse 6, turn your Bibles there, chapter 5, verse 6, and on, it says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, and be a lump of dough, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So this is in relationship to holiness. He's bringing this truth, and he's talking about the Passover lamb. He's talking about Christ, and we know that Christ was crucified during Passover. And we know if we read the story, maybe we've just seen the movie, about the Passover, but the book is much better than the movie. If we read the story, we know that God delivered his people from Egypt. They, they were slaves in Egypt, and he delivered them. He brought the plagues, and he told them to put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, and the, the angel of the Lord would pass over their homes and take the, the firstborn of every other household. So be, because of the blood of the lamb, they were passed over. And in God's deliverance of them from Egypt... They had to flee. As soon as, basically the next day, they were allowed to go, they had to flee. They didn't have time to leaven their bread. Leaven is that agent in bread that causes it to rise. And they didn't have time, so they had unleavened bread. And so when they went to remember God's deliverance, they were to celebrate the Passover, and they were to use bread that was unleavened. Well, leaven also in Scripture connotes, the, connotes sinfulness. And so Paul's using the picture of the Passover and how that was a type, ultimately, of Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb who shed his blood that all who have the blood on their doorposts, the angel of death passes over. In other words, we are forgiven and, and given life and deliverance in him. That, that this type of the Passover Paul uses here to speak to the issue of holiness. And he basically says, do you not know a little leaven, a little bit of sin, leavens the whole lump, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, a new lump of dough, as you really are unleavened. Again, that whole returning to who you really are. You really are unleavened. This is who you are. You're not leavened dough. You're unleavened dough. So cleanse out the sin. Put it out. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It's time, because Christ has been sacrificed and risen and we are in Him now, it's time for a new start without leavened dough. It's time for a new start to live in holiness for Him. We are now to walk in purity and sincerity and right living with our King. Immorality, sexual immorality, in the church has no place. So holiness as well is tied directly to the good news of Christ and to the gospel. He goes on in, in chapter 6 to address some more aspects of this. 
about sexual morality in particular, he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ? Chapter 6, verse 15. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See, that's who we are. Holiness is walking out the implications of the Gospel. Christ died for my sins so I could be forgiven and belong to Him and know Him and enjoy Him and be part of His family. To be part, really, of His body. To be one with Him. And so if I use my body, be it my mind or my actual body, in a sexually immoral way, I'm in a sense uniting my members with, which are one with Christ in a sinful way. And I'm using what isn't mine. I'm using something in which the Holy Spirit dwells for a sinful purpose. It, it is just a horrific contradiction and a horrific insult to the Holy God who's purchased us. So this should not be, folks. This should not be. We know in our society what a problem pornography is to all the different levels of it. There's hardcore pornography, there's softcore pornography. We live in a society that's very much like the Corinthians. It's all around us. And it's on purpose because they know what sells. And they know for men that this is a real temptation. And they know the power of it. And so it's a real issue. And given how prevalent it is in society, and given the amount of men in our church, to some degree, I know some of you are probably struggling with this, at least at some point in time. And it may not be the hardcore stuff. It may be softcore stuff. I also know we live in a society that is sensual and sinful in many ways. So I know women don't tend to be tempted by pornography, but there are many other things that tempt. And it comes in different packages. It may come in romance novels or, or soap operas or movie stars or whatever. These things are all around us. And so this truth should hit home and make impact that this is just inappropriate. It just should not be. The Spirit of God dwells in me and I belong to Christ. How can I use my mind or my body in this way? It's a contradiction and an insult to the Gospel. That's a great question to ask yourself when we evaluate our lives. How is what I'm doing consistent with the Gospel or inconsistent with the Gospel? The truth of the Gospel. That's what Paul does in this letter. And certainly sexual morality is very inconsistent. And so this too should hit home. It should make... It should bring impact to our lives. And perhaps as you're listening, you are feeling it. And God wants you to feel it. And if we really understand it, it should knock us off our feet, hit us right between the eyes and knock us down and shock us. This just should not be. We must be a holy people because we are a holy people. And it's a good thing to be hit between the eyes and knocked down. Because when you get help back up by the Lord, He wants to be there for you. He wants this truth to impact your life. He wants the Gospel to impact you. So as you get back up, realizing there's a Savior who knew about this sin and willingly bore it on the cross for me because He loves me because he's counted me his own. And I'm clean. And I'm forgiven. I've been washed. I've been sanctified. I belong to him. And by his power, and according to this truth, I want to walk that way. And so I have a new start. I have forgiveness. I have him with me. I have this truth to lead me forward. And I have his promise that he'll be with me always. So why should I turn to some cheap thrill? when I've got the God of the universe who's mine and promises to be there with me. And He calls us 
to find our life in him and not this lesser thing, to find our identity as a member of his family, a holy one set apart by him and for him, and to find our delight in him. Your victory over this thing will come as you recognize that this is cheap and dirty and foolish and contradictory. And I don't want it. I want him. I want life in him. I want to walk with him. I want to be his holy people. I want to experience all the blessings of that. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's yours. Walk in it. So if you're in that place, if you've been in that place, you are in that place, receive the truth. Receive these words. Receive forgiveness. Receive new life. Thank God for his word. Paul goes on to call us to holiness in other ways. The section in Ephesians, I mean, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, he calls married couples to holiness, and for them it means frequent, wholehearted sex to the glory of God. And that's holiness. May he be glorified in that among the married couples. That's holiness. Ephesians 5 paints the picture of Christ and his bride. And this wonderful relationship and marriage mirrors that. And it brings glory to God. And I can't think of a greater motivation for holiness in the marriage bed than Ephesians 5. It portrays the ultimate mystery, the glory of God in Christ and His bride. So walk in it for His glory. I think I've said enough. We had a whole message on that. You can go back to that if you want to be embarrassed. We didn't pull any punches. But that's holiness, folks. That's holiness. That's holiness according to the gospel. He goes on and addresses other things. He addresses idolatry in chapter 10. And we spent time on that and the inconsistency being his people and worshiping idols. And, and it's just is not consistent. And God is a jealous God. He wants us to live for him and enjoy him and walk in holiness. He warns us there. The Contradiction of Idol Worship, chapter 10. So I think you guys have kind of some snapshots, hopefully, from that. Understanding this book and the key themes and how they operate and how they can operate in our lives. And the question now at this point is, what now? What do we do now? And I think there's two answers to that. One is we are going to be moving on to a series in Genesis themes in Genesis, looking at the themes established right in the beginning of the Word of God that carry through the entire Word of God, that that's paint and set the picture for everything. So we'll spend in the summer themes, uh, looking at themes from Genesis, chapters 1 to 3 in particular. But there's another answer to what now that I want to address, and that is what are we to do with this? And I think Paul shares some Scripture some things at the end of 1 Corinthians that help us understand what now, what to do now. So if you want to turn to chapter 16 and finishing the letter, because I know he was probably thinking the same thing in regards to the Corinthians, what now, and he says a lot here, but I just want to hit on a couple verses, and we touched this last week. In chapter 16, verse 13, he says, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. One command after another, I believe in response to this book. And later on in the very end, it says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Verse 21. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. I think these words and these statements help us know how we are to take the book of 1 Corinthians. They serve as guides. And in that section in verse 13, there's all these commands, these imperatives, one after another. Be, stand, act, be, let him be, etc. Paul wanted the Corinthians to feel the weight of the truths in the book. So these are weighty truths. There's a lot here. And we don't want to be people who move on from it, kind of forgetting and enjoying the series in Genesis, hopefully. We want 
ourselves to hear the words, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. You see, he wants us, he wants the knowledge of these truths to have their full way. It's not enough to have been a listener for the past 20 months. He wants us to be doers. He wants the truth to work its way out in our lives. He wants us to be watchful, to stand firm. He wants this letter to have its impact, and he, at the end, warns the Corinthians. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Not a real nice way to finish a letter in some ways, is it? If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. What is he doing there? I mean, just kind of interrupting the flow, it seems. You're kind of getting into this nasty stuff at the, at the end. He's warning them, is what he's doing. For this letter is full of very strong and weighty words, very strong stimuli. And in a sense, it's been poking the Corinthians. And he's warning them that, folks, you need to respond to this. There's only one type of person who doesn't respond to strong stimuli. What type of person is that? A dead person. And that's what he's getting at. If there's not love for the Lord, if there's not fruit in your life, then you are dead and cut off from Christ. And therefore, you are accursed. Let him be accursed. That's what he's getting at. He's warning them. Folks, this is not light stuff. And we have to look at our lives and say, is there life here? When I get poked by 1 Corinthians chapter 1, do I say, ouch, or do I say, whatever? That's what he's saying. When chapter 5 and chapter 6 talk about sexual purity, does it affect me? Or do I just ignore it? That's what he's saying. And if there is no response, you're in trouble. So take heed. Take heed if in this series it just hasn't affected you. And this would apply to adults and children, everyone who's here. If it hasn't affected you, be warned. Because you may not be in Christ. And you may be dead and cut off. And you're in trouble. But there's hope in this book. There's hope in the Savior for you. Run to Him. Run to Him. Run from your lethargy. Run from your laziness. Run from your sleep to Him. He will never cast out anyone who comes to Him. So maybe for you, you need to wake up and God would use this to wake you up and realize, wait a second, I'm dead, I think. Run to the Savior. Find life. And then for the believer, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let us do these things. Let us be watchful. Let us continue to keep the Gospel central. To be watchful of our lives. To be watchful for the Lord. To look to apply these truths in all areas of life. Let us do that together. Let us do that according to grace. That's how Paul finishes. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Let us be watchful by grace to apply the gospel to our lives. Let us stand firm in our faith. Let us stand on the gospel. Let us stand on Christ and Him crucified. My wisdom, my life, my forgiveness, my holiness. Stand firm in the faith. And let us act like men and be strong. Let us go after things as well. You see, when we encounter the glory of God in the gospel, there's really kind of two responses that God calls us to. And they're tied. And I don't have time to get into all the intricacies. But one is a passive resting and rejoicing in all that He has done and all that we already are. And that's our basis. But there's also, as we glory in these things, to be an active striving after what we already are in Him. So just to be a passive resting and rejoicing in an active striving and desiring to be what we are in him. And so Paul says, act like men and be strong and go after those things. There's grace around you through many means of grace that God gives. There's the truth of Scripture. And so let us be bold. Let us go after things. Let us walk together. And when we're aware that there's something in our lives that isn't consistent with the Gospel, let us go confidently after it together. Not by ourselves, but together. Be strong. Walk out these truths. That's what Paul's calling us to. So may we be a people who do this.
Paul finishes with the grace of the Lord Jesus be with us. Let us be confident in that behind it all. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you. Oh, Lord, I just thank you for this book. Thank you for your word and the truth. And we thank you for what you're doing in our midst, Lord. And we just ask you, oh God, would you work? And Lord, for those in our midst that may not be responding to anything, Lord, would you have mercy on them and, and, and give them eyes to see and life even today, oh God. And Lord, for us who do know you and do know this life and this grace, help us, Lord, by your grace to, to have the truths of your gospel filter through every aspect of our lives. Come, Lord, and redeem us, we, we ask. Redeem us, O oh God, as a people. Call us to right action in you by your spirit and for your glory. And magnify your name through King of Grace Church, O oh God. We just thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this series. And we look to you, Lord, to continue to do great and marvelous things to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, Lord, bless you guys on this beautiful day. May you walk according to these truths and enjoy them and magnify his name. And may we be a people greatly affected by God's word. God bless. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. If anyone has any prayer needs, I would love to pray for you. Um, but enjoy God's grace. Magnify his name. Thank, thank you so much.